Thank you so much to the Brent Biennial for inviting me to speak today on the Day of Action Against the Hostile Environment. It's a real pleasure to join this programme and I'm excited about the urgent conversations and actions that will unfold across the day. My name is Leah and I'm a writer. Last year I published my first book, Border Nation, A Story of Migration with Pluto Press. The book is a short introduction to the British border regime and joins the dots between Britain's marauding colonial past and the present-day hostile environment. I also write more generally about migration and state violence, as well as about food and drink. For my day job, because who can make money as a full-time writer in this economy, I work for a small charity which provides free advice and advocacy to families with no recourse to public funds who are facing homelessness and destitution. To explain a bit more about Border Nation, the book looks at Britain's colonial history and the key role Britain has played in colonising and generally interfering in 90% of the world and considers the ways in which this history links to the oppressive border regime we now live in. What we contend with in the present day, alongside lots of other dimensions of the border regime, is the hostile environment. The hostile environment is a web of policies knit together by a political agenda which seeks to make life in the UK untenable for so-called migrant communities. And I say so-called because we can look at, for example, the Windrush scandal, in which Caribbean elders who came to Britain between 1948 and 1970 were being targeted for deportation by the Home Office. I'm talking about elders, people like my grandfather, who came over from Jamaica in the 1950s, who have lived here for many years, perhaps identify proudly as British and called the UK their home, now being told that they do not belong. The Windrush scandal is a key example of the brutality of Britain's border regime and the slipperiness of the way in which belonging in Britain can be destabilised via the border regime. The seeds for this living framework of inequality were sown many centuries ago during the colonial projects and the transatlantic slave trade. I think that a comprehension of colonialism and imperialism, which is the extension of a state's power through acts such as colonising, is really crucial to understanding why things exist, such as the asylum system, which is violent and abusive and seeks to reproduce structures of violence and limited ways of being, the no recourse to public funds condition, which is often attached to people's time-limited leave to remain in the UK and blocks them from accessing the relative safety net of the welfare system and the hostile environment, of which no recourse to public funds or NRPF is a cornerstone. We also know that Britain's wealth and global position is attributable to its colonial efforts. We know that the continued hierarchy of wealth in this country maps onto the legacies of those violent histories. So when we consider this history and look at who is routinely blocked from accessing the wealth of the empire by the hostile environment via systems like NRPF, we can see how inequality is entrenched and perpetuated, stretching back centuries and flying forwards into the present day. NRPF is a really clear example of the extension of colonialism. The clue is very much in the name here. We're talking about no recourse to public funds, the public purse, in plain English, the money that Britain holds to spend on its citizens and its infrastructure, in theory. If we attack this concept at the root, we can ask, where did this money come from? How did Britain get wealthy? 
Structural racism is a colonial hangover and it shows up in the precise spaces that we might imagine that the state should be attempting to address poverty, homelessness and more. So for example, in my job as an advisor to families with no recourse to public funds, I've witnessed systematic attempts by local councils to shirk their duty to families facing homelessness and destitution by refusing to provide housing and financial support and advising instead that families return to a country of origin. This is quite a crucial point when we're thinking about the neo-imperial device that is the border regime. This frequent imperative to essentially go back to where you came from, even if you haven't lived there for much of your life, is an overt expression of the racism which underpins the hostile environment and in this instance has become baked into a variety of public services including local authority responses to homeless migrant families and beyond. But to peel a bit back a bit further, I've been asked to speak a bit about the historical context of the hostile environment, and I think it's a useful experiment to try and walk things back to their origin point. So I'll try and do a very potted synopsis of Britain's borders. We're living in this environment where borders are so normalised, they're perceived as such solid, unquestionable pieces of physical and psychological infrastructure by many people. In reality, no borders isn't a brand new idea. It's borders themselves that are the new innovation. Even in the late 19th century, the majority of borders across the world could be passed across without a passport. Prior to the 20th century, laws had been passed in countries colonised and brutalised by Britain to stop people travelling from the colonies to the central hub of the empire. It wasn't until the 20th century that Britain's immigration laws start to unfurl and provide the blueprints for the enforcement of borders on British soil. Here we see the colonial boomerang of systems and processes of oppression being cultivated in the colonies by Britain and then being brought back to the hub of the empire to be enacted on people arriving at and living in the country. As Nadine Elenani explains in Bordering Britain, it was the 1905 Aliens Act which primarily targeted poor Jewish people, categorised as aliens who were seeking protection from persecution, that set us in motion towards the current border nation. So we can see plainly that borders are a fiction, ostensibly created to shut out racialized people from the UK. And the function of this is to protect the financial interests of the rich and powerful. In this way, borders uphold racial capitalism. This is the term that Cedric Robinson uses to explain how capitalism as an economic system relies on the accumulation of capital, which happens by producing and moving through relations of severe inequality among human groups. This is the racist and classist foundation for borders, which exist to protect the interests of capital. From the Aliens Act onwards, immigration laws continue the bordering project. In the post-war period running up to the 1970s, we see a series of legislation which starts to really set the tone and tenor of Britain's immigration policy approach. This includes the British Nationality Act 1948, which is often thought of as a key milestone in the country's migration history, in that it gave the status of British citizen to all Commonwealth subjects, along with the right to work and settle in the UK and to bring families here. This is what leads to what is known as the Windrush generation of people coming to the UK as citizens. 
We also have the Common Commonwealth Immigrants Act in 1962 and 1968, which restricts entry to people with employment permits. This is where we see entry control really being established in a significant way. These acts, it's crucial to note, are sped through and brought in specifically to block Asian communities leaving Kenya, Uganda and Tanzania and using their free movement rights as British subjects to come to the UK. The right to reside in the UK is then restricted again by the 1971 Immigration Act, which basically wipes the slate clean of everything that has come before and imposes these incredibly tight immigration controls. After 1971, we have about two decades of largely conservative governments which steadily build up the border. There's the British Nationality Act 1981, which sets out that from this point, people can only claim the right of abode if they have a prior connection to the UK. For example, a parent or grandparent who was born here. At that time, that means basically only white people. From the 1980s onwards, we see this target shift from people crossing borders in general to an obsession with asylum seekers. This is where we see the immigration detention estate beginning to find its feet. This period also includes joining the European Economic Area in 1973, and here we see the selective dexterity of immigration controls depending on who Britain wants in the country, or more accurately, whose labour. What follows is a rough decade of Labour government. Under Tony Blair, we see four immigration acts following a managed migration approach based on thinking of ways to bring in Labour, but at the same time preventing people from settling and building lives here. We also see the segue into a security, read, overtly ever more racist and Islamophobic approach to migration in the beginning of the 21st century. When the Conservatives return to power, we see the David Cameron era immigration policy with its obsession with cutting net migration and, quote, mass migration. This racist terminology, which suggests that there's a kind of acceptable amount of ostensibly people of colour in the country, beyond which the phrase suggests there would be an unacceptable saturation of our communities and again Nadine Elenani speaks about this in a really useful way in her book. In 2012 then Home Secretary Theresa May announces the hostile environment approach and when you see the lead up laid out in this way it's clear how the hostile environment is not really a pivot in direction but a continuation of a clear trajectory which is about building up racist and classist structures and hoarding wealth for a minority of rich, largely white, powerful people, as well as the corporate companies they are stakeholders of. Before all of this had ever begun to snowball, there is really little concern about borders in the same way, and this might be because of the relative immobility of most people, and travel being quite expensive alongside other factors. In the modern day, there are lots of reasons people migrate, including but not limited to um, leaving wars, environmental degradation, and to escape poverty or economic stagnation, which more often than not have been created as a result of Britain's colonial or neo-colonial interventions in the country. So we arrive at this point where the hostile environment, which has existed in different formats for centuries, is crystallised and targeted through two 
successive immigration acts in 2014 and 2016. And the referendum on Britain leaving the EU builds on this atmosphere and political agenda of exclusion, as well as an idea of scarcity of resources. The hostile environment is a framework of violences meted out on people who are racialized and classed. Theresa May stated that the hostile environment would target undocumented people in the UK, but this was never really the intention. And we can see how in practice, the hostile environment cuts across society, affecting so many of us, either placing us in the crosshairs and or trying to recruit us as de facto border guards, requiring us to check and monitor each other's immigration status in a range of different settings, such as schools, universities, banks, healthcare, and more. The violence of the hostile environment is also gendered. In many cases, survivors will be trying to flee domestic violence where perpetrators are threatening to cancel their visas if they report to the police. Even if they do manage to leave, they may have nowhere to turn as specialist domestic violence refuges for women of colour and migrant women are being shut down and their funding gutted by the government let alone support for survivors for whom formalised government-funded specialist refuges have never existed, such as for trans women of colour, trans migrant women and sex workers. We also know that public services such as the police and the NHS are sharing data with the Home Office. So, for example, we see cases like in 2017, where a pregnant woman reported rape at a police station, was taken to a sexual assault centre and met with immigration enforcement, who took her into custody and interrogated her about her immigration status. The violence of the border takes on new and more dangerous forms for people living at intersecting sites of oppression along lines of class, gender and race. The Home Office is complicit in violence perpetrated in the home, on the street and in workplaces. Exploitative workplaces are enabled through the border regime, which means that reporting abuse in a workplace context for someone who is undocumented or maybe has no recourse is almost impossible, as there is little access to justice in any form and no safety net if you lose that work. In this sense, no recourse to public funds is a form of economic abuse, meted out on women in particular, who may be more restricted in the labour market, many of whom are also juggling paid work with unpaid care work. I speak about women in particular not to suggest that there is a valid stratification of people with precarious immigration statuses. The fact that the Rwanda plan, which is Priti Patel's plan to send people who arrive in the UK, quote, without authorization to Rwanda, is targeting single men is a violent strategy. It works on the assumption that there is no public care or interest in men of colour and black men in particular. It works to normalise the punishment, abandonment and carceral approach to men who cross borders, to demonise them as inherently a threat because of their blackness, for example. Resisting this framing is very necessary. On this note, there's a great book called Deporting Black Britons by Luke de Naronha, which came out in 2020 and it portrays four young black British men who were deported to Jamaica. He touches on the fact that these men had, quote, unconventional family settings or had multiple partners, and this was weaponised against them. When they tried to make a case to remain in the UK on the basis of family life, the government deemed that the type of family they had wasn't something that fit into the rules of British life. In this way, it's very evident how borders 
uphold particular normative ideas of how society should look, which are loosely configured around families being productive, heteronormative economic units. The border itself exists in opposition to the idea of queerness, both in that it is premised upon maintaining the racial capitalist world order, which necessarily involves oppression of queer communities, but also in that it upholds a certain type of family unit based on gender binaries and misogyny and transphobia and a certain way of structuring society. The border also seeks to reinforce the gender binary through making certain visas or forms of limited leave to remain, for example, obtainable for people who are married, in partnerships, cohabiting, or can produce evidence of their current or past relationships. For queer people living in countries where, thanks to British colonial interference, there are laws against being queer and social attitudes which make being queer incredibly dangerous, it is much harder to produce this evidence of your relationship. You may not have been cohabiting. You may not have evidence of your relationship. That's kind of the point if you're trying to stay safe. This approach also reifies the monogamous relationship as a social unit. For example, under the EU settlement scheme, there is this concept of a durable partner, where you have to show that your relationship existed before the deadline Brexit date of 31st of December 2020, showing that you live together in a relationship akin to marriage or civil partnership for at least two years. This is again suggesting that anyone who isn't married or living together doesn't have a durable relationship, and also that a relationship must be, quote, durable under this definition for it to be valid enough for someone to be able to remain in the same country as their partner or lover or partners and lovers plural and live and work here. To return to Luke's book about the British men who had been deported to Jamaica, one of them had their application to stay in the UK, refused because he had two partners who were pregnant with his children at the same time. This was seen as a reason to consider his family structure not valid. There's lots of evidence that the nuclear family unit isn't the only or best way to arrange ourselves, contrary to what the board would have us think. We only have to look back at the pandemic and see how domestic violence spiked by 100% when everyone was forced to stay indoors with their families. This alone should encourage us to question the alleged sanctity and safety of the family unit. Indeed, theorist Madeleine Lane McKinley describes households as, quote, capitalism's pressure cookers. The family unit grows productive sources of labour for the nation state. The border is deeply invested in preserving this setup and shutting out anyone who happens to go about things in another way. The border regime, through systems like no recourse to public funds, hopes that it can make life so untenable that people will leave. The nuclear family suggests, protect your own, don't help others. Resources are limited, so hold on tight to what you have. Hand in hand, these two concepts inflict a deep violence. Statistics from charities working to support people with no recourse to public funds facing extreme poverty show that the vast majority of people affected by having no recourse and who are subsequently pushed into destitution are women and they're raising children without the support of a partner, in some cases with a very limited support network full stop. According to a charity called the Unity Project, an estimated 85% of people applying to have the NRPF condition removed from their leave which lots of people don't know is an option, and there are bureaucratic and legal hoops to jump through, are women. 
Women in these situations can't access free childcare. They would really struggle to work and they can't access benefits or really earn an income. The Unity Project's report found that NRPF, quote, indirectly discriminates against women who are statistically almost always likely to be worse impacted financially by a relationship breakdown than the father. People are also more likely to experience domestic violence if they live at sites of intersecting oppressions along lines of gender, race, disability and more. Women with insecure immigration status experience domestic violence at disproportionately high rates and face barriers when trying to access support. So this is a way in which the racism and misogyny inherent in the violence of the hostile environment in particular impacts women's ability to access things like safe housing. Women's experience of domestic violence compounded with a lack of economic independence and stability due to gender inequality leaves women with very limited housing options and or forces women into very dangerous situations with limited agency because of the threat of homelessness. To close, I'm just going to think about how we move forwards about resistance to the border regime, which is happening all of the time. And I'll read from a passage um, in my book on this topic. Ultimately, as rigid and insurmountable the border regime may feel and be, as in all fortresses, weak points do exist. These points can constitute geographical points of weakness such as a less surveilled point of entrance or crossing. But considering how militarised the physical UK border is, a multiplicity of tactics is necessary. In Corporate Watch's excellent and comprehensive 2018 book, The UK Border Regime, A Critical Guide, different types of border weaknesses are outlined, such as the limits to border staff and resources, limits to home office budgets to hire and train staff or build more detention centres, immigration officers inconsistent lines around adhering to the law, particularly when it comes to assaulting people in front of witnesses, and limitations on what injustices the general public is willing to overlook or endorse. In the UK border regime, the tactic of finding weak points and expanding them into openings is explored. Quote, an opening is a place or time where the regime's control is overcome, or at least substantially weakened. It is still only a limited victory, relatively small or local, but it can become the start of something bigger. Think of a tear in a fabric. Every tear starts as a small hole. It may get quickly patched up or closed, or it may widen, linking up with other tears until the whole fabric comes apart. As we've discovered, these small tears can be stopping a deportation plane or litigating for a certain policy or aspect of the asylum system to be ruled unlawful and suspended. Every small victory weakens the system, even if just temporarily, and reminds us that borders are not inevitable. In fact, they are an incredibly recent invention, and their impacts are violent and unnecessary.